It's Thursday, October 3rd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. For years, public health officials have urged people to eat less red meat and processed meats because they have been linked to heart disease, cancer, and other illnesses. Now, a new analysis says that these dietary guidelines are not backed by good scientific evidence. There was immediate backlash and several public health organizations pushed back, saying that these new conclusions could harm the credibility of nutrition science. Claire Maldarelli, associate editor at Popular Science, joins us for what to know about the latest red meat controversy. Next, the top story in Washington continues to be the whistleblower complaint against the president. And as Trump continues to cast doubt on the allegations, we are also learning that Representative Adam Schiff learned the outlines of the whistleblower's concerns days before he filed his complaint. Whistleblowing has been around since the beginning of the country and has always been a tool to prevent the abuse of power by those who hold it. Allison Stanger, author of Whistleblowers, Honesty in America from Washington to Trump, joins us to discuss what prompted the first whistleblower protection law to be enacted and how protecting them is more important than ever. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Based on the research, we cannot say with any certainty that eating red or processed meat causes cancer, diabetes, or heart disease. For vegetarians and those who don't eat a lot of meat, they often cite health concerns for these choices. However, the benefits of abstaining from meat are uncertain, and if they do exist, they're very small. Joining us now is Claire Maldarelli, Associate Editor at Popular Science. Thanks for joining us, Claire. Yeah, thanks for having me. Public health officials for years now have urged Americans to limit their consumption of red meat and processed meats. There's uh, always been these concerns that these foods are linked to heart disease, cancer, other ailments. But earlier this week, there was this international collaboration of researchers that produced a new analysis. They were looking at other studies involving red meat, and they basically say that some of those studies are not backed by good scientific evidence. And if there are health benefits from eating less beef or pork, they say those are small. Whenever some, a story like this comes out, it's always one of those things you have to take with a grain of salt. There's always backlash against these studies, and there's always some type of controversy behind it. So, Claire, help us walk through this. What do we know about these new studies and then all the backlash that it's been getting? Overall, it sort of shows where we're at with nutritional research. A lot of the studies, including the ones that were included in this new report, which is a meta-analysis, which kind of takes many different studies and looks at them all together and says that are all based on the same topic and says, we're going to make this recommendation or we're going to come to this conclusion. And so the studies that they looked at and that a lot of nutrition research does are based on observation rather than these controlled trials. So with observation research, you sort of ask questions to participants and say, how much red meat are you eating daily or weekly or monthly? And they respond. And so that's really hard because a lot of people don't remember how often they eat red meat. And then at the same time, there's also so many other factors involved in our overall health that it's hard to piece apart just one particular bit of our diet. And so even though this study actually did find there is a slight increased risk for these certain diseases, it wasn't a statistically significant risk, but it was a slight risk. But overall, they said that there's no big difference between the people that ate a lot of red meat versus the people that ate less red meat. But 
it was deemed low quality and low quality means that they're not very sure of what they're telling us. And that's usually indicative of these observational studies. Higher quality studies are usually based on these often double-blind placebo-controlled trials where they give people specific things and they're able to sort of narrow down what that is. That would be Mm -hmm. really hard to get somebody to commit to doing something like that for Exactly. What, what the, the years that would it would take to really find out any meaningful health effects that it would have, you know, and going back to what you were saying, you know, people forget what they eat or they eat a bunch of other stuff. Maybe I had a burger, but did I eat some French fries and have a shake with it? Was I eating a salad with it? You know, all these other things would mm-hmm. could mm-hmm. possibly contribute to heart disease and, and all of these other things. So let's talk about the backlash now, because. A lot of public health researchers and and, uh, other associations, you know, the American Heart Association, the American Cancer Society, they have a problem with this new study coming out saying it's not so bad because it throws people for a loop. Now they don't know what to think about dietary guidelines, and they're still sticking with the original thing that they've had for a long time now. You should still eat less red meat. I completely agree with what you're saying. And a lot of the researchers that we spoke to for our piece essentially said the same thing, that they understand that nutrition research is frustrating and it's hard, but doing it well and doing quality work needs to be done. And so when we do meta-analyses on these studies that are low quality and aren't very good, it's not really telling us anything new or telling us anything that will benefit the conversation. And so going forward, a lot of researchers think we should move away from these observational-based nutrition studies and really just start to do better studies. And then once those new better studies come out, if we do do them, which are incredibly hard to do, that's how we should base our recommendations on. But making these new ones out, like this one that just came out, it really does. It confuses the public because it's sort of the opposite of a lot of really good research that right. has come out in the past couple of years that says plant-based diets are beneficial to our health. You know, just anecdotally, I know doctors will take these lines and when you come in with some type of problems, they'll recommend these things, you know, maybe do eat less red meat. But mm-hmm. anecdotally, you know, the normal public at large sees these types of studies and they're just like, ah, that's BS. I don't care. I'm going to keep eating what I want to eat. I think if anything, this new study kind of casting doubt on this whole eat less red meat thing just still makes the case for moderation, you know, uh, just mm-hmm. everything yeah. in moderation and you'll be, you're more likely to be okay. But I, I mean, that's kind of the sense that I would get uh, of this, you know, who knows what's to think. Like, like you've been saying, you know, there's more confusion about nutrition as these things battle each other out. So just moderate the red meat and you should be all right. <laughs> don't take yeah, that. But yeah. Don't take, don't take also, my opinion like, for that because I'm not a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me neither. I think also just looking at your overall health, I think a lot of times, like even in like big media headlines, it always focuses on these one specific things like sugar or fat or red meat. And instead of focusing on small pieces of our diet, we should be focused like on the entire thing. So yes, if you are eating meat, but what else are you eating in addition to that with your whole meal? And if you are taking out meat, then what are you replacing it with? And so looking at it more holistically could benefit both an individual and like these population-based studies as well. Claire Maldarelli, Associate Editor at Popular Science. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Well, I think it's a scandal that he knew before. I go a step further. I think he probably helped write it. 
Okay? That's what the word is. And I think it's uh, — I give a lot of respect for The New York Times for putting it out. Just happened. As I'm walking up here, they handed it to me. And I said to Mike, I said, whoa, that's something. That's big stuff. That's a big story. He knew long before, and he helped write it, too. It's a scam. It's a scam. Joining us now is Allison Stanger, political and economics professor at Middlebury College and author of the new book, Whistleblowers, Honesty in America from Washington to Trump. Thanks for joining us, Allison. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's a perfect time for the book to come out, considering all of what's happening in Washington right now with the current whistleblower complaint against President Trump. But in your book, you really do a great job of framing whistleblowing as this very important but unrecognized form of civil disobedience. This has been going on since the beginning of our country, since the beginning of America. And whistleblowers have this history of holding people accountable, elites accountable, and to prevent the abuse of power of those that have it. This is something that's kind of going on right now, as I said. In the book, you go through all sorts of stuff. You start off with Essex Hopkins, who was the first commander of the Navy. You talk about Edward Snowden and a bunch of other examples. Let's start there, though, with Essex Hopkins and what his story was, because his story is really what uh, why we have the first whistleblower protection law uh, in the country. Tell, uh, start us off there. That's that's right. Essex Hopkins and the first whistleblower protection law is incredibly important to understand right now because whistleblowing is America's DNA. It is not a partisan issue. It's an American issue. We passed the world's first Whistleblower Protection Act in 1778. That was in response to a man by the name of Essex Hopkins, who was first commander-in-chief of the U.S. Navy. He was removed from his office, and it led to the law, basically because he abused his public office for private gain. He was not a savory character. He tortured British prisoners of war. He used horrible rhetoric, and he hurled insults at Congress. But his biggest transgression was he defied Congress on multiple occasions. General George Washington and Congress would tell him to send the U.S. Navy to a certain place to engage the British, and he would just take the ships where he wanted to take them. I know, it's some pretty blatant Basically. stuff that he was doing. <laughs> Yeah, because he was a Rhode Islander, his commercial interests were at stake, and he wanted to make sure that his economic interests were served. Unfortunately, they were bound up in the slave trade. So it's a really interesting story that leads to our first whistleblower protection law and very much shows that whistleblowing is about making sure our public officials are working for the United States, not for themselves. And in the case of Essex Hopkins, it was 10 people that got together and wrote a letter to Congress basically laying out all this stuff. You know, he's not listening to you guys. He's mistreating prisoners. Tell yes. us how he responded to that. I mean, it ended up going so far that they removed him. But what did he do to the whistleblowers once they found out who they were? And then how did that lead to the first whistleblower law? He actually retaliated against the whistleblowers. He was a Rhode Islander with high social standing in Rhode Island. And there were 10 sailors who filed the complaint but two of them had the misfortune of also residing in Rhode Island, where he had enormous social power. So they were thrown in jail. Congress insisted that they be released from jail. They paid their bail and their legal fees. And they also legislated that all the records of the proceedings be made public. So that's the reason this story can be told today. I mean, it's so interesting. And, and, and you know, it proves the importance of why we have to protect the whistleblowers. Obviously, I want to fast forward to where we are currently right now. And this is one of the discussions that we're having 
about the protection of the current whistleblower against the president of the United States. People are casting doubt over his account. He might have heard things secondhand. And the president has said, you know, I want to see him. I want to meet him. I want to know who this person is. Right now, Congress is figuring out how to keep his identity secret still. As it is already, we know he's a CIA officer. Talk about what whistleblowers go through once they go public with their allegations. This is a pretty standard pattern because whistleblowers provide a public service and they often wind up losing everything. So that's why whistleblower protection is extraordinarily important. What you need to understand about the current case is that this involves a case of national security whistleblowing, which is the most fraught because the intelligence community is very secretive in order to protect national security. They need to keep secrets, but in order to blow the whistle, you've got to reveal secrets. So for whistleblowers, I interviewed all the NSA whistleblowers and also the senior leadership of the NSA. So I have some familiarity with the intelligence community, and that's why I think it's very important to focus on the content of the complaint. There's a lot of noise and things being slung back and forth. In a sense, the White House is just throwing things at the wall to see what sticks. But nobody is defending the behavior in the complaint, which is really fascinating. And that complaint indicates a cover-up of both a national security threat this shadow foreign policy being run out of the White House through the president's personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, also through the Attorney General William Barr, and now it seems perhaps Secretary of State Pompeo. That's a foreign policy completely at odds with the official foreign policy of the United States, which is administered by the State Department, for which funds are appropriated by Congress. Congress has to approve the military aid that was withheld. That's a national security threat, that shadow foreign policy. There's also a threat to democracy from within that's pretty obvious. The president is celebrating foreign electoral interference, and it seems pretty clear that we want Americans to elect our officials, not foreigners. So the content of the complaint is what should be focused on, not all the name-calling. And because this is taking place within the intelligence community, they have a different set of rules for whistleblowing. The, The country is kind of learning this as we go, as the news is going so fast with this. But in any other department of the government, you know, you can go straight to a congressman or somebody else and just kind of throw the complaint out there. But because there are secrets to be protected, because there is national security at risk, you know, possibly at risk, that's why we have this whole procedure of going to the inspector general. You have to understand it's a very rickety procedure. In my view, it's a miracle that this complaint ever saw the light of day because it's much more common for it just to be suppressed. And it somehow went forward. It's a miracle because... The law says explicitly that national security employees are excluded from protection. That's the Whistleblower Protection Enhancement Act. But there's an executive order that set up this process to try to carve out a safe space for national security whistleblowers through the Intelligence Community Inspector General. And that's the way the complaint rose to the top. But it's very rare for there to be Intelligence Community whistleblowers. That's a barometer of how serious the situation is. There's a real fear that democracy itself is threatened, and it's not a partisan issue. It's an American issue. But increasingly, these people in the intelligence community are stepping into the roles of whistleblowers. I mean, they are privy to more of the secrets, I guess. That could be a reason why exactly. But they they are the ones that are kind of stepping into these roles now. Yeah, you've put your finger right on it, and that's something I trace in my book, that the intelligence community has been blowing the whistle on Donald Trump since his election. They've been behaving in very atypical fashion, and they're doing so not because they've suddenly turned partisan. It's not a partisan community. Community, they're doing so because they think the system itself, the rule of law system in our democracy, are threatened by a president who is using his office to advance the Trump brand rather than to uphold the rule of law 
and his oath to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So they've been sounding the alarm for the past few years, and this is just the latest, most official manifestation. And since we love whistleblowers in this country because it's such a longstanding tradition, the Republicans are somewhat stuck because Americans aren't against whistleblowing. So that's the unusual situation we find ourselves in. One of the interesting things I I noted in your book, though, is how often whistleblowers are believed. I think in the book you mentioned maybe 5 to 20 percent of whistleblowers succeed in having their assertions believed. So while we Mm -hmm. want to know the secrets and we want somebody to tell us when something is going wrong, uh, wrong. Sometimes it's hard to get behind them. You go through a bunch of examples in the book, and Edward Snowden is one of them. And there was always this discussion whether he was a whistleblower or not, even though he revealed a bunch of secrets. Edward Snowden is a really interesting case because he's someone who did not complain through the inspector general system. Right. The interesting thing about that, though, is everybody said he should have done it. He instead chose to flee the country and leak the information that way. And he was perhaps right to do that because the man in the inspector general position in the NSA at the time of the Stone leaks, George Allard, was actually removed from his post as inspector general in 2016 for, guess what, whistleblower retaliation. So there is a wow. real bias in the intelligence community against whistleblowers for reasons I've already talked about. That's why one day Snowden may be our first traitor patriot. He initiated a public discussion that would have never taken place without his actions. And basically, he revealed that standard operating procedures in the NSA, there were emergency measures taken after 9-11 that were completely justified because the nation was at war. We'd just been attacked. But those emergency procedures became standard operating procedure without any kind of public discussion or the American people knowing about it. So he initiated a public discussion that led to changes in the Patriot Act. And for that, I think he did a public service. Obviously, what we're going through right now in the country with this current whistleblower complaint, it's all playing out very rapidly in the news, and we're getting little snippets of details here and there. Do you think there's going to be a lot more whistleblower actions in the years to come, whether it's with this president or with other presidents? As people start seeing things, do you think people are going to you know, have the will to speak out more? The fact of the matter is the complaint indicates misconduct at the highest levels to which many people were witnesses. So there are other people who can corroborate the whistleblower's complaint. And I think that's going to happen. But you're also seeing the inspector generals starting to speak out. Just today, the inspector general of the State Department is meeting with Congress at his request. And that's very interesting to me because he will know about any complaints within the State Department about this behavior. In a sense, the inspector generals are democracy's tripwire. They're our insurance policy that we keep democracy on the rails. And the good thing is we're seeing the system working right. in that regard. I suggest everybody check out the book. It came out at the perfect time. I read in one of these articles that you've been working on this book for seven years. So it's yeah. not its not like, uh, you know, it came out because of what, what's going on right now. So, no, it, it, it's a yeah. great read, and I suggest everybody check it out. The book is called Whistleblowers, Honesty in America from Washington to Trump. Allison Stanger, political and economics professor at Middlebury College, thank you very much for joining us. Pleasure to be here. Thanks so much. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.